Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Colossians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And it's an unfortunate chapter break. I don't even know why that one happened. Uh, it's clearly that verse 1 is part of this whole section. So 318 through 4.1. And this section really deals with living out the new life that we have in Christ at home. And so from general ethical instructions in chapter 3 to descriptions of life together in the new family of God in Christ, now to how this new character, this new identity, this new life plays out at home in the family relationships. And so Paul is in the middle of ethical instruction about putting on the new self and living the new identity that we have in Christ. And he's given specific really instructions about what kind of character traits that should look like. Here, he's going to apply them to the family and to how that ought to shape family life. And that's terribly important because, as well-known commentator F.F. Bruce has said, it is the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's profession of faith will normally be manifest, if it's manifest at all. It's in our closest interactions with the people we live with day in and day out that really is the training ground and proving ground for the reality of our faith in Jesus. We can look good at church, right? We can look good out in public, but what about behind closed doors? Are we really living out the Christ-like life there? And that's the heart of the concern here in this section. Paul wants to give instructions to say, this has got to play out at home too. Um, now, with that, let's look at a couple general observations about this section before then we look at the details of the text itself. First observation is this, is this passage has a parallel in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. And that section in Ephesians is probably the more well-known version of these words, of these words here in Colossians. And the section there in Ephesians gives much more detail about the husband-wife relationship than here. Here we just have two quick, short little statements about the husband-wife relationship. Ephesians 5, 22 and following is almost exclusively about the husband-wife relationship. So if you want to know more about that, Ephesians 5, 22, you can get a more full treatment there. Second general observation here is this, is here in Colossians, there is more about the slave-master relationship than about, say, the husband-wife or even the parent-child relationship. And why is that? Well, obviously, we don't know for sure unless we could actually sit down with Paul and ask him. But here's what I suspect. I suspect there's more about the slave-master relationship because of the connection with the letter to Philemon that is written at the same time and delivered at the same time as Colossians to the same church. Um, and Philemon um, is a large landowner, fairly, fairly wealthy person, and the church meets in his house. You can learn more about that in our commentary on Philemon. Uh, and the issue there in that letter to Philemon was an issue specifically between Philemon and his slave Onesimus. And because of the connection with that letter, that issue, the church meeting in his house, some of what Paul said in that letter, I suspect Paul wanted to make sure he gave fair treatment to the slave-master relationship here in this letter that was written to the whole church at large. That's my guess, at least. Third general observation is this, and that is these household instructions that we see here in Colossians, we see in Ephesians, we see in other places in the New Testament, these household instructions 
are really countercultural. Sometimes people just assume that, oh yeah, well, the reason they say what they say is because, you know, they're just, they're just culture bound, stuck in the, the, their culture. And so they, they just are saying what their culture would say. I think that's the error that people make who particularly are offended by this, the, the line about wives submitting to husbands. And so their reaction is, well, that's just cultural. That's just part of their culture. And so Paul, Paul's just restating what his culture practiced. That's a mistake. That misses actually how countercultural Paul's instructions are. These kinds of uh, household instructions show up in various writings of the time, and there is almost zero instruction to the head of the household. Like the head of the household is almost never told to do anything in any of those household instructions. He's pretty much given like a blank check almost to act how he wants. Virtually all the instructions are to the people that are in what's considered the subordinate role, the wives submitting to the husbands, the children who are under the parents and the father, the slaves who are under the slave master. Virtually all the instructions and all the other codes outside of the New Testament are given to those people, not to the head of the household. But not so for Paul here in Colossians and really elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, the head of the household really gets the bulk of the instructions here in Colossians as elsewhere in the New Testament. Why? Because the head of the household, well, he's the husband who's being told to love his wife and not be hard towards her. He's the father who's being told to not nag, belittle, and exasperate his children. He's the slave master who's being told to grant his slaves justice and do what's right by them. I mean, he's the same guy over and over again being instructed on how he's supposed to act now that he's a believer in Jesus. And this, in Paul's culture, this is unheard of. This is incredibly countercultural. So while Paul does reaffirm some things about the roles and responsibility of wives, children, and slaves, there's got to be order in any relationship for things to work well. And Paul reaffirms certain things about those roles and responsibilities about that order. He completely transforms the nature of the relationships based on what he says to the husband, and that's based on the new life he has in Jesus. And in Ephesians, it's explicit that it's based on the gospel and what Jesus did for him, and the husband's supposed to imitate that self-giving love. Uh, and so these are incredibly countercultural instructions that transform the nature of the household as a way of displaying the kind of wisdom and the kind of love that we have learned in Jesus. Now, as to the structure of the section, there are three pairs, wives and husbands, Children and fathers, slaves and masters. Let's take each pair in turn and just hear what Paul actually says to each one of these. Here's what he says to wives and husbands in verses 18 and 19. He says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And so the first bit, uh, wives, be subject to your husbands or submit yourself to your husbands. Arrange yourselves under your husband's leadership. That's the idea of the word submit. It's to arrange yourself others uh, under. And uh, the particular way it's constructed is really telling the wives to make sure she's responsible for this. This is her responsibility. Notice it's telling the wife to do this. It doesn't tell the husband to make sure her wife submits. So husband, that's not your job. 
You, that's not your responsibility. It's the wife's responsibility to arrange her, herself under her husband's leadership, under his direction. Uh, again, there needs to be some order and some direction and some responsibility in the, the way this is going to play out. Her responsibility, according to Paul, is to be submissive, to arrange yourself under her husband's leadership. And he even says this is her Christian responsibility, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, as her relationship with the Lord uh, is arranged under his authority, well, it's appropriate for her to arrange herself under her husband's authority. This is fitting as part of her Christian responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean she's a doormat. That doesn't mean she doesn't have an opinion. That doesn't mean, you know, she just is a, a yes man who always has to do whatever her husband says. That's not the point of this. The point is simply to say she is to treat her husband with respect. She is to treat him with honor. And she is to not constantly grind the gears against him and make just life hard and make life miserable because she's always going to do her own thing and she's just not going to listen and she's just always going to go her own way. Her responsibility is to work with him, to cooperate with him, to respect him, to range herself under his authority. On the other hand, the husband's job isn't to lord it over her, to act like a giant boss, a, a little dictator in the home. The husband's job is to love your wife. Notice that. Love your wife. And again, this is the distinctly Christian kind of love, agape, that we talked about in our last session. That kind of love that's a self-giving commitment to her well-being, to her interests, to her needs. The kind of love that lays down your life for someone else like Jesus laid down his life for you. Husband, that's your responsibility in Christ is to be willing to lay down your life like Jesus did for your wife. And Paul makes that brutally clear in Ephesians chapter 5, where he describes it in more detail there. It's that kind of love that Paul has in mind. And so husbands, um, yes, your wife may be responsible to arrange herself under your leadership, but your leadership is supposed to have her best interest at heart and to be willing to lay down its life for her well-being. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved you. That's the idea. And I'll tell you what. I don't think there would be a wife anywhere who would have a problem arranging herself under her husband's leadership if the husband was laying down his life for his wife like Christ laid down his, his life for him. And so husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. That's the idea of don't just be hard towards them. Don't get resentful because she's her own person and she has her own opinions and she has her own mindset. Don't get embittered because she's not perfect and she makes mistakes and she doesn't do everything the way you want uh, uh, her to. So give give grace. Give space for her to be different. Give grace for her to make mistakes and don't don't be hard-hearted towards her. Don't be resentful towards her. That's the idea of being, being embittered towards her. So husbands and wives, that's your responsibility towards each other. That's the basic pattern for your life together is this cooperative, respectful, loving sort of interplay of self-giving um, relationship with each other. Next pair, children's and fathers. All right, children and fathers. And this is what he says. Children and fathers, verse 20 and 21 says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Uh, and so the first one to the children, children, be obedient. This is the idea of listen to and obey. Again, arranging yourself under your parents. Arrange yourself under their direction. Be obedient to them. In this case, actually do what they say. They're your parents. You have to obey them. And so a, in Christ, a child's responsibility is to obey. 
to obey his parents and to do so in all things, in everything. And so all the time, all the way, obey your parents. Why? Well, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This pleases Jesus. So when children actually obey their parents, it pleases the Lord. And so if you want to obey your mom and dad, then you need to be obedient to your parents. Even Jesus was obedient to his parents. Read Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where Jesus went home with his parents and he submitted to them. He obeyed them. He listened to his parents. And Jesus did that. You can do that too. So children, obey your parents in all things. Now, on the flip side, fathers, remember this is the same guy as the husband above. He's getting more of the instructions in this section than anybody else. So fathers, do not exasperate your children. Yes, fathers here, uh, it really could apply to both mom and dad, but Fathers in Paul's day were primarily responsible for the kind of the parenting role, the, the rules of the household, the order of the household, and they kind of had like complete authority over their kids. And Paul is saying, that's transformed in the Gospels. You don't have complete authority. You can't do whatever you want. So fathers, don't exasperate your children. The word exasperate, the basic idea is to provoke, to pick at, to nag, to belittle, to make fun of, to tease, to constantly be you know, nagging at to do something, to constantly be running them down because they're making mistakes. And so don't be belittling and nagging and harsh with and provoking and just constant rule after rule after rule with your kids to the point where they just they just lose heart he says so that they will not lose heart so they just give up like why do i even bother trying with you why should i even bother to do it i, I can never make you happy anyhow you're never satisfied it's never enough right like fathers don't do that to your kids don't do that to your kids so children be obedient fathers don't exasperate don't exasperate and then the last chunk here is slaves and masters. And as I noted in our introduction, Paul has more instructions to slaves and masters um, than the other pairs. And again, I think it's because of the connection with the letter to Philemon and the specific issue between slaves and masters there. And in fact, Paul actually gives uh, most of the instructions here to slaves. And I think that fits with the Philemon situation as well, where Paul actually leverages Philemon and leverages his relationship with Philemon to have Philemon treat his runaway slave Onesimus with a certain amount of leniency. Again, see the Philemon commentary for more on that. But Paul wants to make sure this doesn't lead to like a slave revolt among the Christians in Colossae or to a mass conversion of slaves in Colossae who are just converting, quote unquote, so that, you know, maybe their, their masters will treat them with the same leniency that Philemon did Onesimus. And so I, I think that's the rationale behind some of these extra instructions here. But not 100% certain. That's just my best guess based on the information we have available. Here's what Paul says, though, to slaves in verses 22 through 25. Let me read the whole thing, and then we'll just make a few comments about it, all right? So Paul says this, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Notice that, masters on earth. He's distinguishing him from a master in heaven, and he'll make that explicit at the beginning of uh, chapter 4. So slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. 
And so that's Paul's instructions to slaves. Notice his instruction, his basic instruction is obey them. Obey your masters in all things. So when they have a task for you to do, when they have instructions for you to do, whatever the rules of the household are, just do it. Do it. Even says, obey them, not with external service. That is, not with eye service, literally. Not, in other words, when they're just watching you. Not when they're just keeping an eye on you. Not just, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do it only when they're watching. I'm going to do it just to make them happy. I'm going to do it, right, like just... Just because I just don't want to make them angry at me. So not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Catch that. Paul wants Christian slaves in Colossae to um, obey their masters, work hard for their masters as an expression of their reverence for Jesus and their devotion to Jesus. So this should flow from the depth of your heart. In other words, think of think of your slavery is an opportunity to serve your master well on behalf of Jesus. Fearing the Lord out of your devotion to Jesus, how can you serve your master well? In fact, Jesus himself in his well-known Sermon on the Mount instructed his followers and his kingdom to go the extra mile, to turn the other cheek. It's that sort of spirit here where it's like, my master, even if he's not totally a, a good man, even if he's not a believer, I'm going to do good by him. I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to work really hard for him as an expression of my devotion to Jesus. That's Paul's point. Verse 23, Paul goes on and says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. He's shifting the slave's perspective. Notice he's saying, Work super hard for your master as if Jesus is your your slave master, as if Jesus is your master. So you do your work as if it's Jesus that you're serving. In fact, he'll come to that here a little bit more explicitly in a second. So work, do your work heartily, wholeheartedly is the idea, as if you're serving Jesus, not just serving people. Verse 24, knowing this, here's why you should do it, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Your master may not treat you well. Your master may not notice your hard work. He may not appreciate it. Who knows? It may go unnoticed. But Jesus will notice. And Jesus will uh, reward you for your hard work and for your faithfulness and for your devotion and for your good service. Knowing that it's from the Lord Jesus that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. In other words, he's pointing towards uh, our future inheritance and glory when we re reap the reward of our faithful service to Jesus. And then he says this in the, at the end of verse 24. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Let's just state it explicitly and emphatically. You're serving Jesus. So your master may think you're serving him, but you're actually serving Jesus. It's the Lord Christ. It's King Jesus the Lord whom you serve as a slave, ultimately. And so shift your perspective and realize that you're actually serving Jesus, he says. And then in verse 25, he says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of his wrong which he's done, and that without partiality. So like, if, if, if you're a bad slave, if you're doing wrong, you're going to get that, right? Like the master, on the other hand, if if he does wrong and if he treats you poorly, he'll be held accountable to that from the Lord as well. The Lord's going to sort it all out. You don't have to sort it all out. You just work hard as if Jesus were your, your slave master and you're serving him. And you let the Lord sort out the whole wrong thing and bring justice and get that whole thing figured out. Because 
slaves, frankly, they just didn't have any recourse. They didn't have any way to sort that out. There, there were small provisions in Greek and Roman law maybe they could appeal to, but there was, they had very limited rights, very few rights, very little recourse. And so Paul's like, look, you may not be able to sort it out. You may not be able to get it figured out. Those wrongs may never be righted. Justice may never be brought to you by your master this side of heaven. But don't worry about it. Jesus will sort it out. You just do what's right. You let Jesus sort out the wrongs and all of that sort of stuff. And so that's his instructions to slaves. What about masters? Well, chapter 4, verse 1 is his instructions to masters. That's why that's a terrible chapter break. So verse 1 says this to masters. And masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Masters, your authority isn't absolute. Your authority isn't total. You're a person under authority as, as well. You have a greater master in heaven. And so master, slave owner, Christian slave owner, guess what? You do what's right by your slaves. Grant your slaves justice and fairness. Quit doing wrong by them. Make sure you do right by them. Why? Because you have a master in heaven as well. He just said that that master is going to sort out the wrongs done there at the in verse 25, right? And so master, that that's a... That's a promise, and that's a threat to you as well. If you've got a slave who's doing wrong, Jesus can take care of that too. But you make sure you do what's right, and you do what's right by your slaves. Whether your slave's a good slave or not, treat him with justice, treat him with fairness, knowing that you have a master in heaven as well. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer this note. Oftentimes, these words to slaves and masters are applied to, say, employees and employers in our modern context. And I don't think that's a totally unfair application, let's just realize there are differences. It's not a one-to-one -one thing, right? Like employees have rights that slaves didn't have. Employees have recourses today that slaves didn't have. Um, and masters uh, in the ancient world were pretty much free to do whatever they want and trade their slaves however they could. And that's just not always true, at least in a lot of places in our world today. And so it's not a one-to-one -one parallel. Nevertheless, there are principles here that are really important for us to pay attention to. So if you are an employer, if you own your own business, or, or you are a supervisor, you should listen to chapter 4, verse 1. Are you treating your employees fairly, rightly, justly? Are you doing what's good and right and fair by them, knowing that you are under the authority of Jesus? And as an employee, like slave-wise, like, Remember, ultimately, it's Jesus that you serve. And so if your job isn't perfect, right, if your boss is a pain in the butt or whatever it is, if it's not always the best situation, remember, like these slaves, you're serving the Lord Jesus, and he will reward you. So do your work heartily as if you're offering it as a worship to Jesus because you're ultimately serving him. He's your true boss. He's your true boss. And he sees and he notices. And so let this shift your perspective. And that's really the principle Paul is dealing with here in this section.